Hi, this is The Gathering Church in Windsor, Ontario, and I'm Pastor Garth Lino. Welcome to our podcast. Not long ago, I read an article told the story of a man who had been convicted of drunk driving on three separate occasions. This time, however, he actually killed a teenager and critically wounded his girlfriend. He was drunk again. He told the the judge and the jury at his trial that he was drunk. He admitted it. His girlfriend affirmed the fact that he was drunk. Someone that they interviewed and put on the stand from the bar that night said that when this man left the bar, he was drunk. And yet, because of some legal technicality, he got off. He was acquitted, and the case was dismissed. There's just something wrong about that, isn't there? There's just something that is infinitesimally wrong about that. It's just wrong. It's unjust. Drunk driver kills teenager, gets off scot-free. That was the headline. So apparently good things do happen to bad people. And that's just a tough thing to understand. Some of the greatest saints in the history of the Bible struggled with God, trying to understand why God works the way He does, why He allows the things He does, why He seems to allow the wicked to prosper and the righteous suffer. David grappled with the problem of evil in Psalm 37. And here in in Psalm 73, Asaph also wrestles with that age-old question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? It's the question of the ages. And then pops up this, this thought, is it really worth it to follow Jesus? I, I mean, if, 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 if God is going to bless the, the wicked, then what, what sense is there, what good is there, what benefit is there from following Jesus and keeping all of the commands of the Bible? It just doesn't seem to be fair. It doesn't make any sense. So some people solve the problem by denying that evil exists. But that's not really a a great solution. Other people go to the other extreme and deny that God exists. And that's really not a good solution either. So some have suggested that this problem needs to be addressed or solved one step At a time. So this morning, we're going to trace the steps taken by the writer of Psalm 73, whose name is Asaph. We're going to trace uh, his steps in, in his efforts to understand why good things happen to evil people. And the first step, well, in the first step, he looks back. Verse 1, he looks back. He says, truly God is good to Israel. So he's glancing back at the history of his people and he's saying, you know, in the past God has been good to Israel, but especially to those who are pure in heart. The opening verse of the psalm is a great affirmation of faith. Surely God is good. The writer looks back 
on the history and declares his conviction that God is and that he is a good God. Verse 1, I think, is really the key to the whole psalm because it, it tells not merely of what God can do, but what God is like. He's, a, he's good. He's a good God. He's good to Israel, Asaph says as he looks back. He, he's been good to Israel all the way along. And he's especially good to those who are pure in heart. He's a, really a good, good father. But you see, here's the rub all of a sudden. Asaph looks back and says, yep, God's been good to Israel all this way. But Asaph is a faithful Jew. He's an observant Jew. He's focused on keeping the law, going to the temple, doing what observant Jews did in those days. He, he too is a good follower of God. And yet, he was not enjoying the goodness of God. His godless neighbors were in better shape financially and, and physically than he was. That's the context of Psalm 73. You can't escape it. God is good, but life right now for me sucks. This is terrible. And look at my neighbors. When he looks back, he affirms that God is good, but he's probably longing for much, much more of God's goodness in his life. He feels like he's getting the short end of the stick again. You ever been there? So what should he do? I mean, what would you do? What would you do? You, you look back and think, well, yeah, you know, God's been good to our church. He's been good to my family. But what about me? It's like he's forgotten me. He forgot my name. He forgot my address. He doesn't have my cell phone number. I haven't gotten any text messages from him. Nothing. Well, after looking back, he now looks around. That's the next step he takes in trying to answer this age-old question. Why do good things happen to bad people? He looks around and says in verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So, he was slipping. His, his faith was not as solid, not as secure, not as as strong as it had been in the beginning or at an earlier time. And no matter which way he turned, he was on thin ice. Looking around at the circumstances didn't seem to do him any good. When he looked back, that didn't help. He looks around, that doesn't seem to be helping. He only becomes envious of the people who are living next door. That often happens when you compare yourself to others, doesn't it? The ungodly and their children are well-fed and well-dressed. Mom, the, the woman next door just went out and bought another genuine coach purse. That's the fifth one she, she owns now. And, 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 and her old man is driving a, a last year's model Lamborghini. It just doesn't seem fair. As far as Asaph can tell, his neighbors have no struggles. Their bodies were healthy and strong. They were comfortably housed. They were successful in the world. They were doing well in the stock market. They had fruit on the vine and cattle in the stalls. I mean, it just doesn't seem fair. Here I am following God and keeping His commandments. And those suckers over there, they don't give a rip about God. And look at what God is doing for them. They're doing fantastic. They got two brand new leased trisers in the driveway. 
Where was God all this time? Anyway, why wasn't he chastening and chastising those wicked people who lived next door? You know, you kind of wonder sometimes, right? Asaph was upset because of their prosperity. He was also angry because of their pride. Look at verses 6 and 7. Therefore, pride is their necklace, he says. Violence covers them as a garment. How descriptive. Remember, this is poetry. Their eyes swell out through fatness. <laughs> their hearts overflow with follies. Oh, man. It's like if these comfortable cats, if these presumptuous, arrogant people would only stop for a minute and just, just give praise to God for all they have. But no, sir. They take all the glory to themselves because they're just so arrogant, so proud, so self-made, like my next-door neighbor. As he looks around, Asaph concludes, this, this, is, this is what the wicked are like. You know, they, they're always carefree, they're comfortable, and they're, they're, their net worth just keeps climbing. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. So looking around, just looking around just has not done Asaph any good. And, and it never does. Every time, I, I mean every single time, you compare yourself or contrast yourself with other people, with your friends, with the guys that you work with, or, or the people you go to school with, or your neighbors, or your circle of friends, or the people sitting in the row behind you. When you compare or contrast what you've got over against what they've got, there will always be people with more money, more toys, bigger bank account, faster car, bigger house, better looking wife. I mean, there will always be people like that. Well, maybe not better looking wife, because you've got the best looking wife in the world. Right, men? Okay. Whew. I saved us. Because Patty's going to be listening to this podcast. Comparing and contrasting yourself with others is never healthy. It always, always breeds discontentment, dissatisfaction, and displeasure. Am I right? You know I'm right. So, let's see what happens when, when Asaph takes the next step and he begins to look within. Remember, he's trying to answer this age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? And he takes a number of steps. He looks back, he looks around, and now he starts to look within and says in verse 13, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. So at this part, at this juncture of his spiritual journey, Asaph decides to, you know, hit the pause button and kind of do a self-examination to look deep inside of himself. And what does he discover? His conclusion is, oh man, I've made a big mistake in trusting God. I've kept my heart clean. I've kept all these commandments. I've done, you know, I've done it all. And where's it got me? Look at those people. They got more than I do. Verse 13, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. So what's the use? Why should I live for God? What good does it do? 
Now, right or wrong, true or not, this is how he felt. It's one of the reasons I love, I love the Psalms. They're so incredibly honest, brutally honest. And he just tells it the way it is. He was honest with himself and with God. And I'm glad about that because I felt that way too. Right? Most, many of us have. Many of us have felt how, how he feels. I made a big mistake in trusting God. Where is this getting me? But listen, every time, and I mean every time, every single time without fail, always, each time, every time, you take your eyes off Jesus and start to look inside for answers, you are going to come up short. You will be disappointed every single time. Why? Because... You'll be frustrated and you'll be disillusioned because we were not created to be self-dependent or, or autonomous or independent creatures. We were, not, we were not wired up by God. We were not created by God to live like that. We were not created to be the center of our universe or the center of anybody else's universe for that matter. Sorry, parents. You're not the center of your kid's universe. Jesus is... At least he should be. We were created in the image of God not to look within, but to look to Him. And to live out our lives in a way that's pleasing to Him. And so He receives the glory and honor that He so desperately deserves. Asaph is really at a critical crossroad in his life. And you might be there too this morning. He's looked back and declared his basic theology, God is good. Okay. He may not be experiencing God's version of goodness in his life at that very moment, but God is good. Looked back. Looks around, becomes envious of the wicked. He looks within, finds nothing but turmoil and unrest. And every single time, Without fail, that you look for answers to life within yourself, you are going to end up in turmoil and confusion with a boatload of arrogance and pride to go along with it. Maybe you're in the same boat as Asaph this morning. <laughs> you, you know, you're looking within, you're looking internally for answers. Fortunately, Asaph takes the next right step, and I hope you will too. He looks up. He finally gets to that place where he lifts his chin and begins to look up. In spite of his confused mind and his pained heart, Asaph went to the temple of God, and there in the presence of God, he presents his case. It says in verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, remember he's trying to answer this huge age-old question, it seemed to me a wearisome task. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, until, until, he says, until. It was wearisome, it was frustrating, I had no understanding until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. Uh, 
No matter what we learn in the marketplace, on the job, or no matter what we learn at university from all those wonderfully highly paid professors, and no matter what we learn as we travel the world and go from country to country and city to city and place to place, we need to bring it all and lay it down at the feet of Jesus to gain His perspective and His understanding on all of it. Get into the presence of God to find discernment. Like Asaph, it wasn't until he came into the presence of God that he finally understood how all of this is supposed to work. Evaluate everything in the light of eternity. Bring it all to the foot of the cross. When we walk by sight, all we see are the price tags. But when we walk by faith, we learn the true value of things. And when we look up, we begin to see life in a totally different way. It's a totally different perspective when you actually get into the presence of God and look up and begin to see things in light of eternity and in in light of Scripture and begin to see, when we begin to see the world through the eyes of Christ, eyes of Christ, and we, we, we begin to look at our sin through the eyes of Christ, and we, we begin to look at our church for whom He died through the eyes of Christ, and we begin to look at the opportunities that He's given us over on Columbus to, to reach another neighborhood and to affect another part of the city. When we, when we look at all of that through the eyes of Christ, and we're looking up, and we're doing that in the midst of worship, in the midst of His, his presence, then it changes things. It brings a whole different perspective because worship gives vision uh, and meaning and and purpose to all of life. Even if we can't understand it all. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ changes absolutely everything. The gospel changes everything. It, It changes your perspective on Possessions. It, it, it changes your viewpoint on values. It changes your perception of power. It changes your outlook on organizations. It changes your position on prayer. The gospel changes everything. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the very focus and center of our church. And when Asaph looked up, He saw the the values and the lifestyle and the possessions of all of his neighbors in light of eternity. And that changed everything. Verse 18. Truly, Lord, you set them, the wicked, the ungodly, people who aren't following you. Lord, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. It's very descriptive, poetic language, but he he finally gets it, that the the facade, the the new cars, the big house, the, the bravado, the walk, all of that stuff is meaningless. He all of a sudden says, this is where that gets them. So look up, my friends, look up. Look up. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. 
look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Look up. The gospel of grace changes everything. So Asaph looked back and he looked around, he looked within, he looked up, and and finally he looks ahead. He's already seen the awful destiny of the godless. He, he, He gets it. It's not just about what they have and the way they walk and the way they look and where they shop. It's not about that. It's about whom they follow, who is their father, who is, they one, who is the one they surrender to. That's what it's about. So he's seen the awful destiny of those who will not follow God. But what about his own future? What about Asaph? Because he took time to worship God in the sanctuary, he's able to evaluate his life now in the light of eternity. And as a result, he goes on to say in verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you, Lord. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. I don't have all the answers to all the questions yet. But I do know that you're guiding me, Lord. And I will follow. I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. And that's a good feeling. To be led by the right hand of God the Father. To be led by Him. To be guided by Him. Even in the midst of my confusion and, and frustration. And, and I don't understand why he, why he does all that He does. But He gives me little clues along the way. And I pick them up and thank Him for every one. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. You guide me with your counsel. That comes to us primarily these days through the Word of God. The written Scriptures. You guide us with your scriptures, Lord, and afterward you will receive me into glory. That's when it will make sense. That's when I'll get all my questions answered. That's when it'll all come together. That's when the last pieces of the puzzle get put in place and we go, ah, how could I have been so dumb? I see it now. Thank you, Jesus. But the end of his experience is so much different than the beginning, isn't it? Remember? His feet were slipping at the beginning. Oh, My faith is slipping. My feet are slipping. What's going on? And it catapults him into this series of questions. But the end is different than the beginning. Aren't you glad about that? The end is different than the beginning. I started my life out in sin and degradation. Oh, coming from a broken heart. The beginning of my life was a mess. Jesus saved me. And day by day, by His grace, I'm learning what it means to follow Him. The end doesn't have to be like the beginning. Look at verses 25 and 26. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Oh my goodness. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Wow! That's so different from the first few verses, isn't it? Incredible. How did that happen? How how did he get to this spiritual high ground? That's what we want to know, right? How did he get there? Did he receive a promotion in his company? No. 
He, he bought a ticket at 7-Eleven or Max and won the 649? No. Oh, he graduated summa cum laude from the Jerusalem University. No. His circumstances had not changed. His salary had not changed. His diagnosis had not changed. But he was a changed man. He was changed. The end of the psalm is nothing like the beginning. And that is grace. God's grace. He, Asaph, went into the presence of God. He looked up. He stepped into the sanctuary. And boom! Everything changed. He got with God. And everything changed. It led to a transformation in his life. And maybe, just maybe, God wants to transform your life starting today. Entirely possible, isn't it? You've been praying about a personal state of affairs. You've been trying to change your spouse or change your kids or change your boss. You've been trying to maneuver and manipulate and alter things and nothing is going your way. Did it ever occur to you that maybe God wants to do a new thing in you? Maybe you're the target of change. Not your spouse, not your friends, not your neighbors. You! Maybe God wants to change you. See, when good things happen to bad people, don't get envious, don't get critical, don't get jealous, don't get judgmental. Just get to God. Just get to God and let God get to you. Find out what God wants for you. Get all these voices. So many people telling you, you read a book, you went to a seminar, you went to a conference, your next door neighbor, your friend at work, your prayer partner, everybody's got God's will for your life. You're trying to figure out, make sense of life and what's happening. Forget about it. Forget what everybody else thinks. Get to God. Get God's perspective on your life. What does God want for you? What does God want? I have a feeling this morning that God wants to hear you say, Lord Jesus, whom have I in heaven but you? Right? I desire you more than anything. And more than anyone on earth. I want Jesus. I think God wants to hear you say, I long to be satisfied in you, Lord, and in you alone. You're the way, you're the truth, you're the life, you are my everything. Because somewhere along the way, he's been displaced. Hmm? with something or someone or some value. He's been displaced in your life. Make that right today. Let the transformation begin today, August 20th, 2017. Maybe he wants to hear you say, my, my health may fail. 
and it is. And my spirit may grow weak, and it does. But Lord, you are the strength of my heart. And I will not settle for anything less than all that you have for me. I trust you. I trust you, Lord, now. And I will trust you forever. I just have a sense that that's what God wants to hear from you, from us this morning. Is that something that you feel you could say today and really mean it? I think I think that we we experience God's favor in our lives and we have been as a church family as the new family of Jesus we've been experiencing so much of his favor and I think that part of the reason why we have other churches going wow we want to be part of what's going on at the gathering you know here's 20 here's $30,000 Count us in. We're, we're, we're going to partner with you. I think the reason for that is because Jesus is at the center of all we do. He is the, he is the summit. He's the apex. He's the, he's the beginning and the end. He's the alpha and omega. He is the gathering. But our church is only as strong as the people who make it up. <laughs> we are the church. Oh, Lord Jesus. We long to be in this place this morning where we can lift up our hearts to you and declare that there is no one on earth that we desire more than we desire you. We come to that place this morning of, of absolute and total surrender to you. And thank you for the privilege of being your children. Thank you for allowing us in to the sanctuary of God this morning where we could stand in your presence. when we can sense your love and your power working for us and working in us and working through us. Thank you, Lord. We praise your name today. Amen.